0: This is Malcolm McDonald, author of Malcolm McDonald on Marketing Planning, Understanding Marketing Plans and Strategy, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book
1: Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Also, if you're listening to the show right now and you're not driving or operating dangerous machinery, please Send me a tweet at my new Twitter handle, at MarketingBook, and tell me where in the world you're listening from. Today, we're joined by Professor Malcolm McDonald, and we're going to talk about his latest book, the second edition of Malcolm McDonald on Marketing Planning, Understanding Marketing Plans and Strategy. Professor Malcolm McDonald enjoys a global reputation as a leading authority on marketing. He was, until recently, (coughs) professor of marketing at Cranfield University School of Management, is now a professor at five of the UK's top business schools, including his alma mater, Oxford University. He has been a consultant to many major companies on almost every continent, not Antarctica, in the areas of strategic marketing and marketing planning, market segmentation, international marketing, and marketing accountability. Professor McDonald is also chairman of numerous companies and works with the operating boards of some of the world's leading multinational corporations and of particular interest to the listeners of the Marketing Book Podcast, he has written 46 books. Professor McDonald, congratulations on marketing planning, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Delighted to be here.
1: Now, I should state that for my listeners in the UK, I just want to make clear you are not the Malcolm McDonald who is the former English uh, professional footballer named Super Mac, um, who was the. Uh, powerfully powerfully built striker who was famed as a prolific goal scorer. Are are you ever confused for that, Malcolm McDonald?
0: Not really, Douglas. My name is spelt differently, um, and I'm considerably older than Malcolm McDonald. Um, And uh, he did score five goals for England uh, once, and so when it suits my purposes, I pretend to be him.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So let me just uh, open with an excerpt from the book. Uh, marketing is a process for identifying and creating sustainable competitive advantage. The important words here are sustainable competitive advantage. Competitive advantage can be achieved in many ways, such as through a technological breakthrough, but today such breakthroughs are easily copied. Cost reductions, but these are rarely sustainable. Sponsorship and the like. Sustainable competitive advantage results from embedded relationships with customers through value propositions that delivers superior value to customers, the only real source of long-term super profits. This is what this book is about. So, Professor McDonald, this is the second edition. What... Uh Areas uh, were updated, if not all of it, uh, versus the first edition, which came out, I believe, in two thousand
0: eight. This happened since two thousand eight, Douglas. As we all know, uh, we've had the um, advent of the internet. We had a major global recession. Lots of companies that were two thousand eight are no longer around, and uh, you know, I study the ones who survived which is why I still travel around the world working for many famous American companies, amongst others. Uh, and I keep learning from them, and I am still researching um, at Cranfield, sponsored by companies like 3M and um, Rolls-Royce and companies like that. So I'm pretty well up to date, but I won't bore the pants off you by wittering on about digital I think the main thing that's happened is, you know, the sort of demise of the of marketers as a community, because what happened, Douglas, uh, this happened about 50 years ago. We used to have what academics called a product-dominant logic, and then along came the Nordic school with the service-dominant logic, and they said, uh, look, you know, customers are not just the um the responsibility of marketers, they belong to everybody. And everybody in the company said, oh yes, that's that makes sense. So marketers got pushed out of the way and became the promotional department. Now what's happened recently with the with the arrival of digital, it's got even worse because everybody said, oh digital, that's marketing. So these people, bless them, have moved further and further away from the boardroom. And, you know, there's an awful lot of out-of-date marketers who think it's about digital and it really is what it's always been about. It's been about customers. And just one other thing, you know, I don't want to give too uh, convoluted an answer to your questions, Douglas, but when I go to boards of directors, being a marketer, they tend to sit there with their arms folded wondering what this professor is going to talk to them about. Um, So I ask them two very simple questions. I say to them, and this is what the book's about, I say to them, write down without talking to each other, what are your key target markets in order of priority? And the second part of the question is, against each of your key target markets, write down your company's sources of differential advantage. Now, any board of directors, now I'm talking about an operating board of directors, any board of directors that can't answer those two simple questions should be sacked. Because how does a company make money? It makes money by selling something to somebody. And by goodness today, you'd better know who out there in this complicated world you want to sell to. You'd better understand their needs. And much more importantly, you'd better understand why they should buy from you rather than from somebody who's offering something similar. And just to finish off this uh, answer to your opening question – Typically, what directors start talking about when I ask about their key target markets, they start whittering on about their products. And I stop them and I say, no, I didn't ask you to talk about your key uh, products. I asked you to talk about your key target markets. And this is what gets people confused because today, I think every sane person understands that there's no such thing as a bad product today. Uh, all products all products are really quite good. There was, an art, there was an article in the Harvard Business Review recently that said all products today are excellent. So you're not going to get competitive advantage by uh, having a different product. It's going to be the way you relate to your customers and your markets. And this is what that paragraph that you quoted there and it's what the book is really all about it's it's not about products it's about the way you relate to your markets and your customers
1: professor McDonald, it's as if you're looking at my screen because my first question after that one was what are the two questions that asked these folks uh, that seem to be so difficult to answer and just for the listener's benefit i'm going to repeat them what are your key target markets in order of priority and number two in your key target markets what is your company's source of differential advantage? That was like a two-by-four between the eyes in reading that. It really, I think, <laughs> it got my attention. But let me go on to a couple other things here that, that seem to come up a lot. Why is uh, competing on price a no-no? In other words, why is dropping price to maintain sales a recipe for disaster?
0: Well, in the main, I mean, if you if you live and work in Europe, our cost base is so incredibly high that we can't possibly hope to compete on costs with the developing world. And indeed, that's been shown to be the case. And I suspect it's very similar in America, although obviously we haven't quite got the same economies of scale and scope. But it, um, you see, the other point is that all the research that I've read about markets shows that anywhere in the world, the real low price segment is never greater than 10%. And so when I see companies dropping their price, it's a clear giveaway that they haven't the faintest idea what the needs are of their their customers. And customers only buy on price if they think everything is equal. And that's the point. I mean, that's not sustainable. You will never get sustainable competitive advantage by competing on price. And. You know, I really, really don't think that that is the future for America. It's certainly not the future for Europe. We have to really get into understanding markets and real needs. And then you can very easily, all my clients move a long way away from, from price. And, you know, when you're talking to companies and buyers in companies, price is the last thing that comes up if you are able to verbalize and quantify the value that they're getting. And I'm talking about financially quantifying the value that they're getting. And just at one little statistic, it was McKinsey who raised this point. They said that in the UK, for example, ninety-five percent of companies talk about value propositions, but only Only 5% of companies have got value propositions. Now, Douglas, we're talking about the year 2016, and only only 5% of companies have got financially quantified value propositions. That's disgraceful. I mean, where are the marketers? What are they doing? I'll tell you what they're doing. They're fiddling around with digital. However important digital is as a channel of communication, it is not marketing, never has been, and never will be. So it's, you know, the answer to those two questions is crucially important. And when I ask them of operating boards of directors and they can't answer them with any degree of, of confidence, I know their marketing departments are useless and, uh, you know, we need to start from scratch.
1: You have looked at over 40 years of research uh, into the, for 40 years, into the link between the long-run financial success and and excellent marketing strategies, where the the two meet. Can you talk about what some of the successful strategies are that successful companies have, as well as the strategies that these less successful companies have? Uh, Perhaps some of the ones that can't answer that question.
0: Well, the ones that can't answer the question, they're either still in growth markets, which is why they survive, or they are going to disappear. And, you know, that's why so many companies disappear, Douglas, because they can't answer those two simple questions. But I've got 127 scholarly references, which I won't bore, bore you with. And they all attest to the fact that long run financial success is a, is a feature of the following things. And, the, you know, the first thing is defining markets in terms of needs, not in terms of products. That's something we've covered already. The second thing is it's needs-based market segmentation. And I mean, if I get chance during this interview, I'll say a few things about that because uh, quite clearly there's a big chunk of the book about that because it's the heart and soul of the book. And then when you've got proper needs-based segmentation, you have to choose the segments that better match your, um, your, your own assets and your own skills. And then when you've got them, that's when you can start developing value propositions and that's communicating those value propositions and that's where branding comes in. You'll notice that branding comes in at the end of all that. And everywhere I go in the world, because I'm a professor of marketing, people want me to talk about brands. And I say, look, you can't even answer the first two questions about your markets and about your, about your competitive advantage. Why do you want to talk about brands? It's a complete waste of time. So everything—I mean, what I did on Philip Kotler's Asian Global Summit a week before last in Tokyo—I made market segmentation the, the the bedrock of of my talk to the Japanese audience. Um, well, it wasn't just a Japanese audience, but this major audience that we had. And you know, a big chunk of the book is about needs-based segmentation, and that's not about And what passes as segmentation, which is things like socioeconomics and demographics and geodemographics, that never has been segmentation and never will be segmentation. If you take socioeconomics, for example, socioeconomic group A, I mean, Boy George and the Archbishop of Canterbury are both group A, but they don't behave the same way. You take those idiots who say that all women between the ages of 18 and 20 all behave the same. People who say geodemographics, everybody that lives in my street behaves the same. It's a complete and utter nonsense. So getting back to needs-based segmentation is not the easiest thing in the world. But when companies do it, I can guarantee that as a minimum, they will grow their margins and their profits by a minimum of 10% because it takes them away from pricing completely. So segmentation, Douglas, segmentation, segmentation.
1: You said that Boy George and the Archbishop of Canterbury, as you mentioned, they're both in socioeconomic group A, but apart from wearing dresses and singing a lot, they don't behave the same.
0: That is absolutely true. And Prince Charles and Ozzy Osbourne are also (laughs) in socioeconomic group A, but I don't think they behave the same either.
1: Thank goodness, uh, they don't. Well, let's uh, let, you mention value proposition. Can you explain what that is? That seems like one of the most misunderstood uh, concepts. You, you're very clear about what a value proposition should be in the book.
0: Yeah, well, I have uh, read most of the stuff that's been written about value propositions. And I can tell you, a lot of it is descriptive, and they never really take you to the core of what the process is, but whereby you actually end up with a, a financially quantified value proposition. And it's, you know, if you think about it, it's it's not it's not rocket science because there are only really four things that uh, you can do for any customer or any market. The first thing is to help that um, company to create value, and. You'll see in the book I've listed quite a, a a lot of ways in which you can create value for an organization. Um, the second way is to avoid costs, and the third way is to reduce costs. The fourth way, which is more difficult to quantify, is the emotional stuff, and that's very important, and a lot of it comes from what i you know what I describe as market segmentation. but if you take the first three. And you get into something as simple and as universal as Michael Porter's value chain analysis, it is quite possible, in fact, not quite possible, it's easily possible to look at an organization's value chain and work out ways in which you can add value to their processes, reduce costs and avoid costs. And all these are eminently quantifiable financially. this is what General Electric do it's what 3M do it's what uh, SKF do. I mean SKF charge considerable margin over and above the the average price in the market for their bearings and at the end of the day they're just little steel balls but companies buy them because of the added value they get from dealing with SKF and you know it's such a it's such a common sense approach it makes me, it staggers me that in the year 2016, so few companies have got quantified value propositions. But as I say, you know, I've kept the book that we're talking about, I've kept it very simple and readable and understandable. I've tried not to use any theory. I've tried not to use any long words. And I've made it so that there's an actionable actionable propositions throughout the book so that people can actually read it and put real data and information in um, in order to get some real end results.
1: And there were a few points in the book where you said, now, not to get too academic here, but <laughs> I thought you were, you really seemed to be trying hard not to, to make it uh, too academic, but there were a few concepts, like Porter's, chain that you were very important to explain as well as the uh the ansoff matrix well okay let's talk about uh market segmentation and perhaps can you can you tell the story about market segmentation as it related to the fertilizer company and how they were able to succeed when others were taking a what i think you call a marmalading effect where they just assume all their customers were the same
0: yeah well it's again it's um the reason I chose fertilizers, Douglas, is because it's it's a horrible product. It's uh, P, N, and K. Anybody who's got a chemical plant can make it. And at the time when I entered that market with one of my clients, there was not one fertilizer company in the world making $1 of profit. The Russians were dumping urea all over the place. It was a disaster area. And um, When I went to my client and asked them how they segmented their market, I mean, they really segmented it on technology. And, you know, I said, well, let's get down to who actually buys and uses this stuff. And, of course, the answer is farmers. And They didn't actually talk to farmers, this client of mine, because they went through intermediaries, just the way many companies do, like SKF, go through intermediaries. And what what we did, what I did, was to segment the farmer market, and I found that there were uh, eight farmer types. Uh, There was one of whom was the price segment, but he was only 10% of the market. I mean, the ones I'd like just to mention briefly was one was uh, the show-off farmer. He liked his crops to look nice he you know he liked he liked white fences he liked uh, he liked you know white white fences clean cows he liked his crops to look really really attractive but then there was another one who was called Oliver we called him Oliver and he was driving around his farm uh, on a tractor with an aerial attached to a satellite and you know he thought he was einstein this guy now if you imagine that a salesperson, not that they ever did, but you imagine a salesperson going up to uh, the first one, David, I I called him, and actually talking technical, David would have been, you know, he would have been completely dumbfounded by it. And if you went up to Oliver and started saying things like, put this on your crops and they'll look pretty, he would have headbutted you and kneed you in the groin. Um, But they didn't know any of that. And once we'd got that and got that sorted out and profiled the eight segments. It was quite clear that your CRM system will then work because um, it's now doing something useful. They got rid of most of their R&D expenditure because they were making a load of rubbish, and all they did was uh, tailor the products and the message to each of those individual farmers. But they focused on three of those segments, and they became the only profitable fertilizer company in the world, and they became the most profitable subsidiary of the parent company. And that was in a market that was a commodity market, a so-called commodity market, and one that was being devastated by idiots dropping their prices. And it gave them something like a three- or four-year advantage before the rest of the world caught up with them and began to realize that it's people who buy things at the end of the day. And it's the same for all markets, Douglas, people talk about business-to-business marketing. I know you've just been to a conference or to a, a fair. Well, I don't, I don't believe in B2B marketing in that sense. I don't think anybody's ever sold anything to a company. Companies don't buy things. It's individuals in companies that buy things, and those individuals don't stop being people with emotions just because they're buying goods and services for organizations. And the heart and soul of my message and my book is that people are not rational. People never have been rational and people never will be rational. I've never met a rational person in my life. And there's even medical evidence to back this up now. There's uh, the, the, the medical world has just done the famous Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola test with people with a damaged part of the brain that does emotion. And as you remember, in all the tests over the past 40 years, a majority prefer Pepsi-Cola when it's blind, and then a majority prefer Coca-Cola when it's open and the labels are on. And that completely disappeared, that phenomenon, when you had the people with the damaged emotional part of the brain. So segmentation is about getting down and finding out what really, really motivates customers and people. And you can aggregate that into segments in the market. And once you've done that, it changes the whole organization. Everything in your organization, like balance scorecards and CRM systems and so on and so forth, they all begin to work. And the customer, oh, even digital works properly when you understand the the way people prefer to access information and buy. Um, And a lot of that digital stuff is wasted because there's no segmentation there. Indeed, there was a Harvard Business Review article. I think it was in 2008, and it said that um, 30,000 new products were launched in America, and 95% of them failed because of poor or inadequate market segmentation. So I'm sorry to go wittering on about it, uh, Douglas, but it's a bit crucial um, <clears throat> to profitability.
1: And it's made very clear in the book. And I think you, at one point you mentioned the Harvard Business Review. There was, uh, it said 85% of new product launches in America Oh, it failed. was
0: 85%. That's right. Thanks for correcting me on that. that was That's right.
1: <clears throat> they, they failed simply because of poor market segmentation. And my hunch is that... They've fallen into the, the opposite of that, uh, which is uh, the product trap. Can you say just a bit more about falling into the product trap?
0: Well, yes. I mean, if you think in terms of your business, if you think in terms of products, uh, you know, the things that you make, whether it's a product or a service, um, that's not what people buy. Yes, there is a product, but today – I mean, you take something, uh, something as simple as a lawyer – Today, any organization has a choice of hundreds of lawyers who've got exactly the same skill, the same skill set, uh, so I can choose a lawyer. Now, if the law firm doesn't offer something beyond, over and above that, guess what's going to happen? they're going to start buying on price. And there's a a lot of evidence that in the city of London, for example, where you get many of the world's biggest accountants and law firms, because they haven't done proper segmentation, customers are using their common sense and buying on price. So, yes, your product's got to be excellent. But as I say, it's the way you relate to your markets and your customers within those markets, and that's where segmentation comes in.
1: Professor McDonald, in the book, you explain that it's common practice in most companies to write off marketing as a cost uh, within each year's budget. It's rare for expenditures like that to be treated as an investment, which deliver results over a number of years. But research shows that companies who are able to do this create a lasting competitive edge. Can you say more about that?
0: Yes. I mean, it's uh, we have in all organizations, as you know – uh, the cost of capital hurdle to um to um, uh, you know to 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 mount all companies have got it cost of capital and the way um expenditure not just marketing is is evaluated is using net present value calculations or discounted cash flow. They're both the same thing. And of course, they use the cost of capital or the weighted average cost of capital as the hurdle, and then they'll choose according to the sort of best results. Now, the problem with doing that in the marketing domain, Douglas, is very, very simple, that all organizations, and I think I say this somewhere in the book, but all organizations, They have to spend so much money, so much to stay where they are to keep the business they've got. I call that maintenance marketing expenditure, and I'm amazed at how few companies have bothered to work out what their maintenance market expenditure is to keep the business they've got. What we should be doing then is looking at investment marketing marketing expenditure, which is how much am I investing to get incremental growth and revenue? That's where the calculations on net present value and discounted cash flow should be done. The trouble is, most organisations lump them all in together, and they anything that's uh, that's that, that's spent is they use the discounted cash flow calculations, and and they'll you know, so what it leads to because they're basically flawed. Uh, what it leads to is marketers cheating, telling lies and uh, saying they're going to get better returns than they do and of course this puts marketing into you know enormous disrepute and th- the other problem of course is i mean i've written i've written two books three books on marketing um, the measurement of marketing effectiveness you know the problem with marketers is that in the main they don't really understand how um, a company's finances work Very many marketers don't even understand what the cost of capital is and how it's calculated. Um, They don't understand the concept of shareholder value added because if I can prove that my marketing expenditure is going to create shareholder value added, then any board of directors will listen to me. And I don't think many marketers even know what shareholder value added is. I mean, it's very simple. It's, you know, the, the, the net free cash flows after having taken account of the time value of money, the cost of capital and the risks associated with what you're what you're spending it on. Uh, again, that's not rocket science, but that's what the best marketers in the world do. And unfortunately, there are too few of them who think like this. So we need a really, really good dose of finance understanding to uh, get, get into the marketing community. That's why I've started writing books on this topic.
1: It reminds me of a study by, I think it's the Fournays group, where they they, they found that something like eighty percent of CEOs didn't trust their chief marketing officers, primarily because of they didn't understand the connection to revenue. Uh, they just thought they were trying to get Facebook likes. Yeah,
0: and it's, it's it was a, a, even worse, Douglas, because uh, you know, I mean, the two thousand and eight, two thousand and seven Deloitte report said exactly the same thing. It said that, you know, they've lost traction in the boardroom because of uh, of financial and economic illiteracy. And, uh, you know, you don't get this in the best companies in the world. There is a very strong connection in the General Electrics and the 3Ms and the SKFs, very, very strong. And, of course, in the Procter & Gamble's of the world, very, very strong connection between what marketers do and the bottom line. And they all understand uh, shareholder value. Um, You know, I I want any organization that is, for example, putting a marketing plan together. I don't care whether it's two pages or whether it's 15 or 18 pages. I want those people who have put that plan together to be able to show the board of directors that it is creating shareholder value added because that is what. The world out there is judged by whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not. That's the way the world is judged. And it does apply, it applies equally to small, medium enterprises. If I've got, say, $20,000 invested in my company and the cost of capital is 10%, and I'm only making $1,500 a year, I've destroyed $500 of shareholder value. Now, what sort of numpty would want to run a company like that? If I'm making two and a half thousand dollars, I've created five hundred dollars of shareholder value. It's not overcomplicated, I think, uh, Douglas. It's to me, it's elementary. Um, it's elementary business common sense.
1: Yes, and there's uh, lots of it in the book, and uh, we can't really go through it in this interview. But it, the the book really walks you through and has examples and, and and specific questions on how to go about doing this. So it really. Uh it warmed the cockles of my MBA heart. But let me ask you a couple other uh uh pearls that I, I just think the listener's gonna enjoy hearing about. Why do you recommend not wasting money on market research and why should you not ask customers what they want?
0: Very easy. Customers have never known what they want and they never will know what they want. I mean, let me just, just give you a hypothetical example of this. Um <clears throat> let's say There are four people in a horse and carriage in the 19th century, and I stop the horse and carriage and say, what do you want? They're not. The first guy isn't going to say, could you go away and invent the internal combustion engine for me, please? Uh, And I say, what's that? And he says, well, it's the associated corpuscular emission per 0.0 gram of air producing ions carrying one electrostatic quantity of electricity of either side. I say, thank you very much indeed. I'll go away and do that. And then the next one says, this horse stinks. Could you go away and invent air conditioning for me? And the next one says, what about windscreen wipers? The next one says, what about ABS brakes? I mean, it's complete complete lunacy. Nobody's ever known what they want. And if you, for example, are doing something for, say, a factory manager, you've got to understand their work environment. You've got to understand the noise, the smell, the grime, the inconvenience. And once you understand it, go back to your factory or your laboratory and make something that makes the grime less grimy, the noise less noisy, uh, the inconvenience less. But don't go and ask the poor soul what he wants because he doesn't know. And that's, again, what the best companies in the world have always, always done. Um, and the best companies in the world are continuing to do that. And, you know, people, as I keep on saying, are not rational, never have been, and never will be.
1: Next question. What is a SWOT analysis, S-W-O-T, and why do you think they are as useless as an ashtray on a motorcycle?
0: <laughs> well, um, I would say, I would say that they're as useless as a bird of prey with a squint. Um, everywhere I go in the world, uh, I can tell you, Douglas, I usually end up as a sad old git in a hotel, and <clears throat> I go up onto the business floor, and I. At the end of the day, and I see in the syndicate rooms these flip charts, and they've all got the crucifix on there, you know, the, cro- the, the, the SWOT, the SWAT, and they all say exactly
1: the same. Interesting word, crucifix. Yeah, they all say
0: the same things. They say under, under, under threats, they say the weather and you want to stab yourself in the eye with a fork i mean i've never seen one that hasn't got the weather on it it's got um, oh it's got legislation it's got competitors it's got uh, yeah inflation it's got the koreans are on the on the threat side and on the on the opportunity side they put the weather um, competitors inflation the koreans never make it to the to the to the threat side and of course what they've done if they have looked at something they call a market, and there's no such thing as a market, there's no such thing as a customer, and they've ended up sort of averaging. There's no such thing as an average customer, an average consumer. And most of those things are a complete and utter waste of time. And in the book, I show people, ordinary business people, ordinary businessmen and women, how to do it properly and to get some real value out of it. And you do a SWOT on a segment, yeah, don't do it on the world and their, you know, their relations. Um, so I'm not the biggest fan of that, but they are. It's a very, very valuable tool when it's done properly.
1: Mm-hmm. And I should state for the listener that SWOT is uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, and those are the four quadrants that go around this crucifix that you've described. Yes. <laughs> so in a world where there seems to be insufficient marketing planning, what are some of the primary reasons? Uh, why it's so necessary
0: well I think it's largely because the world has got more complicated um, we uh, the world used to, I was I used to be marketing and sales director of Canada Dry which was a fast moving consumer goods company as you know and all those years ago, the world was not as complicated as it is now. Uh, we knew who our competitors were. We knew who our customers were. You know, we knew about the technology. It was really all very, very simple. Nowadays, where you've got merging technologies, you've got merging needs in markets, um, you've got um, the time from um, invention to you know, to marketing is has come rapidly down from, from my day. Competitors
1: from all um, different places that you wouldn't have thought of. Oh, you Com- get
0: – yes, you get different cultures. and But the point I'm making is that if you haven't got some kind of – I mean, customers today know more about us than we know about them. They don't want salespeople to call on them and talk about their products. They, they want to hear about value. But the point I'm making is that if you're going to get into that equation of what value is – You'd better do some intellectual work on your customers and your markets, and you'd better make a note of what that is. Now, that's what a marketing plan is. At the end of the day, a marketing plan will say what the key target markets are in order of priority and what your sources of differential advantage are, and we'll turn that into financials that uh, create shareholder value. So I fail to see how you can keep all of that modern-day complexity in your head. So you need some kind of plan. I mean, the word plan is awful. It sounds very bureaucratic, but I don't mind if – I mean, you know, we all know, we've all done it. It's the planning process itself that is the real, real deliverer of value. It isn't the actual words you write down on a piece of paper or on your computer screen. It's the process of sharing ideas, of trading off ideas with your colleagues, reaching some kind of consensus – and uh and understanding what the value is and then getting out there and creating that value for your customers
1: it brings to mind general eisenhower's uh quote he said something like i've i and he knew a few a few things about plans and planning uh and he said i found that plans are useless but the planning process is invaluable
0: yeah i mean it's it's i think i think most most people understand that the real, real value comes from actually trading off ideas and doing the investigations and not the the actual words that you've written on paper. And in any case, you have to end up – I was talking in the book about a strategic plan, which is something like three years. But uh, when you've done that, you've then got to do the detailed scheduling and costing out Um, in a one-year plan now the world changes so quickly that if you haven't got contingency plans in first of all if you've got assumptions in there you've got to make sure that the assumptions are sufficiently robust but you're not sure that those assumptions are going to happen so you ought to have contingency plans and those contingency plans when things change as the year progresses we frequently need to refer back to our strategy. That's the strategic plan that the book writes about, to make sure that we don't destroy everything just from some short-term problems that
1: we've got. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Professor MacDonald, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be?
0: Well, it's not all customers are created equal, but it's not just that. It's, um, it's the bit I've been wittering on about, which is proper needs-based market, seg- market segmentation. Because that is the bedrock of commercial success. As I said, I've got 127 scholarly pieces of research to support that um, assertion. And having said that, it's, to me, the one message that I would ask readers to take away from it is the 80-20 rule. Stop marmalading yourself across everything that moves. Select the 20% of segments and customers that you want to succeed with, and then develop value propositions for them, and you will never, ever look back. But so many organizations have got too many products, too many markets, and they just haven't got the focus that they need. So one of the first things I always do in the books, in, um, in my books, in my workshops, my masterclasses... I get the organization to do an 80-20 analysis, and it typically, they all find, because they knew it before, that 20% of their markets and customers give them 80% of their revenue. And then the rest of the process makes sure that it's the right 20%. But it's focus, 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 focus. That's all that companies like Apple do. They focus, focus, focus. Read their strategy documents, it's about focus.
1: Very well said. What books have inspired your work and career?
0: Oh, well, I have a degree in English language and literature from Oxford University. So I think I've picked up much of my inspiration from Shakespeare and Keats and Wordsworth and Burns and uh, Alexander Pope and John Milton and people like that. But there are some business books. I mean, one, for example – Was a book about, I don't know, a book about 12 years ago by a guy called Hugh Davidson. And it was called The Committed Enterprise. And he studied, I think it was something like 37 organizations that have been continuously successful over a long period of time. And many of those organizations were American organizations, but they weren't just commercial organizations. And what he discovered was that they were all good citizens. They all uh, understood. Companies like Johnson & Johnson understood that it isn't just about the profit, uh, you know, the the profit God. And, uh, you know, profit is like a sausage. It's uh, very tasty until you find out what goes into it. Now, the point I make is that, you know, there are lots and lots of fantastic organizations out there that are making <clears throat> very, very good profits for their shareholders, but they're also doing the right thing by their stakeholders as well. So it's it's what is beginning to change the world, Douglas. We know this. It's called the circular economy. Um, we haven't got enough resources left on the planet Earth to keep on doing what we're doing. So that, for me, was certainly a turning point in my business education, that book, The Committed Enterprise by Hugh Davidson.
1: We'll make sure to include a link to that in the show notes for this episode at marketingbookpodcast.com. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading?
0: Well, I've got one that I read recently. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. I think that's how you pronounce his, his name. Yes. And it's what we He said it in a very, very eloquent and scientific way, but it's what we all know, that Again, people aren't rational. It's not the way people make decisions. I've bought them and I'm looking forward to reading them. There's one called The Invisible Gorilla uh, by Shabaris. Uh, and it's, it's basically, as I understand, it's about psychological misconceptions. So you can see the way my mind is working. And there's another one called Chasing Stars, which I'm also looking forward to reading. And, um, you know, the sad thing is, all of these are American books. <laughs>
1: I I, those sound uh, very interesting, and I think you're just making my reading list that much longer, so I thank you. We'll make sure to link those up. Uh, Professor McDonald, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book?
0: Uh, This is always difficult. Uh, I mean, I have a website, and I've got my papers, and I've got blogs, and I've got case studies, and I've got tweets, and I've got all the usual stuff on there. And um, I've had enormous fun putting it together. Um, and you know, I tried to do on my website, I'm not sure I've succeeded Douglas, but I tried to do on my website, you know, what I've criticized many other websites for. When I looked at it two years ago, I discovered that I was saying things like I do this and I do that and I can do this and I can do that. And of course, the truth is nobody cares what (laughs) you can do. So I tried to fashion my website in the context of what kind of problems people have got um, I don't, I don't think I did it very well, but at least I've sort of listened to my own – taken my own medicine, as it were.
1: We'll make sure on the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com to provide a link to your website. And I would like to say that on your website, you have a video. It's maybe two or three minutes of you talking, and I thoroughly enjoyed that.
0: That's very kind of you.
1: <laughs> so – The name of the book is Malcolm McDonald on Marketing Planning Understanding Marketing Plans and Strategy. Professor McDonald, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Douglas, it's been my pleasure. And, you know, I look after yourself and I wish you all well.
1: And that closes the book on episode 98 of The Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for links to all the things we talked about in this interview and free marketing guides from my agency. And while there, make sure to sign up for The Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Hey, I just love hearing from listeners to The Marketing Book Podcast, and I'd like to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and send a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle, at marketingbook. And please join us next time as we talk with Jill Conrath about her new book, More Sales, Less Time. Surprisingly simple strategies for today's crazy, busy sellers. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.